James 1, 1 through 8. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. The person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. May God add a blessing to the reading, hearing, and understanding of these scriptures. In fact, you know, it blows me away every single week. There are all these people that show up every week to make sure this happens, right? Uh, and that just blows my mind. I'm just so thankful for that. Thank you for that. If you'd like to join that team, we're always looking for some new suckers. I'm just kidding. Uh, but people who are, you know, willing to, to volunteer and give, us, give some time on Sunday morning, uh, we would love that. If you're interested, stop by the Connect table um, after church. Did you bring it up here? Where'd it go? Oh, here it is. How many of y'all know what this is? Butter churn. How many of you have actually ever used one of these? Anybody? Wow, there's a few of you. Okay. You were probably alive in like the 70s, weren't you? What were those like? I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'm just joking. It's a a butter churn. This is a butter churn. You know, butter has been a staple of the human diet since at least 2000 BC. That's 4,000 years of butter. I think we should celebrate that. I mean, butter just makes everything better. Am I right? Love me some butter. Now, the butter churn has been around for nearly 1,400 years. And where we don't necessarily use these, you know, every day anymore, right? A hundred years ago, I mean, this was a, a regular part of everyday life. You would churn butter, not just every now and then, but probably regularly, right? Like now, if we want butter, what do we do? Go to the store. We go to Costco, especially. You get that like gigantic pack of butter, right? You never run out of butter when you get your butter from Costco. But a hundred years ago, you didn't go to the store for it. You made it, right? And you would use a butter churn to probably make, you know, that butter. What I find funny is that this once common household tool has somehow been transformed into a highly sought after piece of decor. Am I right? In fact, this one came from my friend Brooks' house. It sits on your hearth, right next to your fireplace. Because it is beautiful, right? But once, this thing was once used every single day. Now, it's sort of put on display, right? This is kind of what people do even now. They decorate their houses with like vintage, you know, farm tools. I grew up in Indiana. I don't know where Indiana is. Got some Indiana folks. Yeah, so excited. I don't know why. It's not, there's really nothing that exciting in Indiana. I promise. It's okay. But the the inside of Indiana is just very country. I mean, if you want to know what somebody's house looks like in Indiana, just picture Cracker Barrel. I got a picture. There's a crack. That's Indiana right there. There it is. Indiana home living. That's what it looks like. There's like an axe hanging up. Do you know how awful it'd be to be in Cracker Barrel during a tornado? I mean, it's just like, you know, farm equipment flying around everywhere, right? But stay with me. I mean, think about how strange this would look to somebody from like a hundred years ago. Like imagine if they could somehow travel through time and walk into somebody's house and see them using a butter churn to like bring the room together. You know what I mean? 
that would look sort of strange. It's like, why, why, why is this sitting here in the family room? You know, what was once, you know, purposed and used on a regular, regular everyday basis has now just become sort of decor. It's easy for this to happen with our faith too, isn't it? We're going to say, ooh. No, with our commitment to the way of Jesus. There's something that was meant to be incredibly practical, that was supposed to be used on a regular, everyday basis, can somehow get reduced in this sort of antique that we put up on a shelf. And we maybe like point to it every now and then. You know, we might sort of take it down, you know, like fancy fine china when everybody's coming over. Right? We might take it down for certain occasions or certain holidays. And we may even be really passionate about defending it. But we don't necessarily use it on a regular basis. Something that was intended to be used regularly now just sort of gets displayed. This is something that the author of James wants to confront directly. This, this Sunday, we're starting a brand new series on the New Testament book of James. And James is without a doubt the most practical and down-to-earth book in the entire Bible. It's sometimes referred to as the blue gene gospel. And that's because James isn't interested in talking about theoretical ideas about salvation or the afterlife. No, James is committed to helping people understand how their faith in Jesus, their commitment to Jesus, how it ought to shape how they live their everyday lives. Now, it's true. It's true that our faith is also a mystery. Can I get an amen on that? I mean, there's a lot of things, you know, about our faith that we don't fully understand. Not everything is clear and plain, but there are a whole lot of stuff that is. And James really wants to zero in on that. There's a good chance this is actually the oldest document of the the New Testament. Probably the first one that was written. And it began to get circulated around the, the early churches as early as maybe like the 60s. A.D., not 1960. Okay. So, you know, 20, 20 years and some change after the events of that first Easter. This is probably the first writing that, that's sort of circulating. And I love it because James like, let's not get too caught up and try to understand what all of this means about life after death and about all this sort of stuff. Let's just remember what it means to be Jesus people what it means to commit to his way of life. Let's double down on that stuff, the stuff that we can be sure of. I love that. I love it. I think it's just as timely for us today. Because, man, in our day and age, there are no shortage of opinions. Am I right? Opinions about everything. Endless debate about ideas and about opinions. And opinions are fine. I've got plenty of them. But, you know, followers of Jesus aren't meant to be recognized first and foremost by our opinions. We're meant to be recognized by our presence, by the sort of people that we are in the world and how we handle the things that come our way. That's what James is zeroed in on. I mean, he's the one who famously says faith without works is dead. You tell me what you believe in, I'm going to watch how you live. And he's got a lot to say about how we treat people on the margins, what we do when we get angry about how we spend our time. It's very practical, down-to-earth stuff. And so that's what we're getting into in this series. If you're sort of new to all of this, maybe you want to start reading the Bible for the first time, I mean, James is a good book to start with. 
It's very clear and it's very simple. That doesn't mean it's really easy to take in and apply to your life. It'll challenge you in all sorts of ways. And over the next couple weeks, we're going to be offering some new resources, new opportunities for you to go even deeper. Next week, we're going to launch a brand new podcast. We still haven't like nailed down the name. I think we do, but we're not going to tell you yet until you tune in. But it'll be launched probably midweek of next week. And we're going to discuss the sermon a little bit deeper, maybe even invite some guests on so they can sort of share their experience with it. And it's also a place for you to ask questions. And so, you know, whenever we take a text, uh, don't always get to everything that the passage has to say. And, you know, I think sometimes a really good sermon sort of prompts more questions than provides answers, right? And so I would love for you, you listening to the sermon, if there's something that you're like, tell me more about that, or you didn't get to this, email me, please. Like, you guys are bad at that, by the way. I love you, but you're bad at that. I know you got more questions than you offer me, right? It's because you forget. Don't forget. Make it a habit, right? If there's a question you have, email me. In fact, pull up your little email, email thing right now and put my email address in it or just start typing your questions up and you can send it before you leave, okay? But we'll get to some of that in the podcast. We're also going to have a community Bible study starting on Tuesday of next week, 6.30 p.m. over at Irmo Community Park. All right, bring your dinner with you. We can eat, we'll eat at one of the shelters. In fact, when you pull in, veer to the left, there's some shelters right over there. Uh, 6.30, Tuesday nights, Irmo Community Park. You got it? You dig? You dig? All right, well, we're going to get into it today. Um, we're probably not going to go line by line through this book. And there's a few reasons for that. One is it, was, it wasn't actually written to be read. It was written to be heard. People were, uh, were uh, illiterate in the first century, so they couldn't read anyway. But they would listen. And so one of the things you'll find, if you read through the book of James, it's very repetitive. Very repetitive. It's like a handful of these themes that get repeated over and over and over again. Again, it's because it's meant to be listened to. And you have to hear things more than once in order for them to stick. And so there's a good chance as the weeks go on that we might sort of hop around a little bit uh, in the book. And kind of pull out some of these major themes. All right. But this morning, we are going to start with the introduction. But first, can I pray? Let's pray. God, thank you again for another opportunity to be together, to hear from you. And Lord, we ask that you speak to us this morning. You speak to us. Somehow, in this mess of a bunch of words that I'm going to throw out there, I pray that you say something with them. And today we're going to learn from from James about wisdom on how to handle trials, on how to handle adversity on how to handle the unexpected things that we didn't want to happen. And Lord, what I know, because I have the privilege of being the pastor of these people, I know there are plenty of people in this room who are right in the middle of one right now. And so, Lord, I pray that you soften them up. And I pray that, Lord, you say something to them that they need to hear, something that's helpful. Lord, I pray for the rest of us who maybe aren't in a trial right now. There's one coming. And so, Lord, I pray that this stuff can sink in so that we can put it into practice when we need it the most. We love you so much. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So first up, yeah, we're going to get into what James has to say about how our faith can really be a gift when it comes to how we handle trials. Let's start, though, in James chapter 1, verse 1. It says, James a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. Now, according to a really early tradition in the church, 
The James who wrote this book was actually the brother of Jesus. You know, apparently he had a hard time coming to terms with who people said Jesus was and who even Jesus believed himself to be because he was his brother. You got to admit, that'd be hard. That'd be hard to believe, wouldn't it, about a sibling? It's like this guy used to give me wedgies, you know, and now I'm supposed to believe that he's the Messiah, right? Really? Like it's hard to believe that about people you're the closest to, right? But he had some sort of encounter with Jesus after the resurrection. It changed his mind. And he came to entrust himself to the saving love of God and to commit to the way of Jesus. And he actually went on to become a really big-time leader in the early church. He became the lead pastor at the church in Jerusalem. It was like the mothership, right? That's who he became. Now, the author, James, addresses this letter to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. It sounds epic, right? The 12 tribes scattered among the nations. You should make an echo on that. Nations, nations, nations. Don't laugh at that one, fine. The 12 tribes is another way of speaking about the people of Israel, the nation of Israel. The first Christians were pretty much all Jewish. They didn't think of themselves as anything other than Jewish. They thought that what they were was a renewal movement within their, their faith tradition, right? And so uh, the author mentions that they had been scattered among the nations. In around 60 AD, the church in Jerusalem began to experience some really severe persecution. And that's because their insistence upon who Jesus was and what God was up to in Jesus and the kind of life that Jesus called us to, man, it upset the status quo. We hear persecution, we think of like, you know, you got to say Merry Christmas at Christmas time, right? Or you're trying to get you to say Happy Holidays instead of Merry Christmas. That's not the kind of persecution the the first century Christians experienced. Man, their their insistence on who who Jesus was and what was up to, man, it upended everything for them. They got ostracized by their families. They got their businesses blacklisted. They got physically persecuted because this sort of God was so radically different. This way of life was so radically different than the status quo. And so around 60 AD, the church in Jerusalem, man, it got got bad. And you can read about this in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 8 and verse 1, it says, On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered. It's the same word that's used in James chapter 1. And so some people believe this is who James is writing to. I mean, he was the pastor of this community in Jerusalem. Things got bad, and people had to leave, and they get spread out all over, you know, the ancient, ancient Near East. And so people believe this was the letter that he wrote to them during that time. And it got passed around, and it got shared to different communities. And so when he talks about trials, he's not talking some, from some ivory tower. I mean, this guy's living it right now. He's experiencing it right now. And so in verse 2, the author says to this group of people, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Let's unpack this a bit, because that's a lot. Don't you agree? The word for trials in the Greek is this word parasmos. And it also gets translated as test or temptation or disaster or get this, plague. 
Whenever you hear about a, read about a plague in the New Testament, it's probably this word. It's a sickness. It's an epidemic. Something we're recently familiar with. Remember that? Remember those two years, three years? Yeah. Ugh. Now it says in verse 2, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials. Now maybe a more literal translation would be whenever you fall into, or even better, trip over trials. It's supposed to be a sort of word picture. One that I'm actually pretty familiar with. I got short legs and big feet. Walking upstairs and flip-flops is not a good idea. I trip all the time, right? But it's this idea of tripping over something. Whenever you trip over or fall into trials of many kinds, because there's more than just one kind. Am I right? There's the big, obvious trials. Then there's the quiet ones that nobody else really knows about. The things that keep us up at night. We know all about trials. Like whenever you trip over to fall or fall into trials of many kinds, James wants to offer us wisdom on how to navigate the stuff you didn't see coming. The stuff that you didn't plan for. And for the most part, the things that aren't your fault. And according to James, we can come to a place where we can not only deal with them, but they can have something to do with joy. The root word for that in the Greek comes from the word gift. So what James believes, his sort of insistence is that we can be the kind of people who not only can handle trials, but somehow in some way we can come to see them as a gift. That our trials and our joy can be friends. Man, is that something you want to learn about? Is that something you'd like to fold into your life? I know I would. So let's keep going with it. Now notice, this is important. I'm going to point it out every single chance I get. This is important because the author says, whenever you fall into or trip over these trials, not if, right? doesn't say if you fall over or trip into, whenever, when you fall over or trip into trials. This is huge. This is big. And I know I say it a lot, but I'm going to keep repeating it because it's got to sink in. I think the first step to being able to handle the hard things that come our way is beginning to expect them, to just know they're part of it. They're going to happen, right? They're just going to happen. It sounds harsh, and it sounds heavy, and at first it's not very hopeful. But I'm telling you, it actually is the opposite. It is helpful. It is hopeful because coming to accept the fact that life is hard, like coming to expect the unexpected is one of the first steps we have to take on the road to what James calls maturity, wholeness, or even joy. Because there really is. There's this sense of freedom that we can experience when we realize that, you know what, bad things are going to happen. Bad, hard things are going to come our way. It's just how it is. And this is the important part. That doesn't mean that God's mad at us. It doesn't mean that we, you know, even have failed miserably. It doesn't mean that God has abandoned us. It's just par for the course. I'll never forget, a few months before we launched our first service back in January of 2020, I called a, other, a pastor friend of mine who was a church planner. He started several churches. And he's been pretty successful at it. So I called him and I was like, listen, you know, we're a few months out. Do you got any advice for me? You got any words of wisdom? You know, like what, what would you say, you know, to yourself if you were me, right? I'll never forget. He's like, yeah, I got some wisdom for you. He's like, I know you've got this all figured out. (laughs) 
It's like, I know you've got a picture for how your first year is going to go. It's going to be all big and epic and shiny, and all the people that are going to show up, and how exciting it's going to be. Just understand, it's not going to happen like that. It's not. It's going to be harder for reasons that you don't even see yet. There's going to be people who leave that you never thought would leave. Just know, this is going to be way harder than you think. And boy, was he right. Ten Sundays later, the world ended. Remember that? It's like, whoa. He was right. You know, and it's true for all of us. Like anything in life that's worth doing, that's important, I promise you it's going to be hard. It's going to be real hard. I mean, as simple as like asking that person out on a date. You got your eye on somebody. Hey, baby. There's a really good chance they could tell you no. Right? Or you even get into a relationship with that person. Understand something. Marriage. Long-term relationships, they're way harder than you think you are when you're all Twitter-pated and in love. Am I right? Or bringing kids into the world. Sounds like a great idea until you do it. Yeah. And they're all cute and sweet and nice at first, right? They're all so cute and cuddly. Then they become teenagers. And then what happens? They break your hearts in all sorts of ways. And they grow up and they make mistakes. It's going to be hard. You know, and I think we're like these people. Man, 100 years ago, people just knew that. They had to make butter in a churn, right? Like things were just hard, but we have grown up and everything's just so comfortable. And we just have way more than we need. And so, you know, challenges now just seem like this, where did that come from? Like that's not supposed to happen. No, it is. That's just life. That's just how things are. But also notice this. This is important. These are just just getting started. How are we doing on time? I got to go. Okay. The author says this, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials. Now, the Greek word there literally means like tripping over or falling into. But sometimes, man, I just I, I get something from how it gets translated into English, too. And that word face just kind of hit me as I was working on this passage. Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials. See, it's better to face a trial than to try and run from it. I recently learned uh, something really interesting about Buffalo. Y'all say buffalo. Buffalo, bison, whatever you want to call them. But there actually used to be buffalo in the eastern United States. In Indiana, there were tons of buffalo back in the day. Not so much now anymore. Now they're all, you know, in the Great Plains, right? Got a picture of a buffalo? Look at that. There they are out there in the Great Plains. But I learned something interesting about them when it comes to their instincts about storms. You know, big storms roll up in the plains all the time. And what's so fascinating about buffalo, especially compared to cows, cows don't do this. It's just a buffalo. But buffalo, whenever a storm comes up, instead of trying to run away from a storm, they'll run right into it. They'll just head right into the storm because they have learned that their time with the storm will be shorter if they head towards it instead of trying to run away from it. Because you try and run away from it, usually you just end up running with it. As Robert Frost once said, the quickest way out is through. How many of y'all know something about that? Man, I found that to be true with so many of the trials that have come my way, particularly with things like anxiety or grief. These are things that we often just try to run from or we try to avoid or ignore or get around, and they end up just kind of hanging around and owning us for way longer than they have to. Like me with anxiety, man, anxiety, I remember when I first started experiencing it, like, I don't deal with it all the time. I've had a, f- a few, like, really significant 
seasons of anxiety. I remember the first couple, man, I would feel it kind of coming on like a storm. Here's what I'm talking about. Like you can just kind of, it's coming, you know, and I would get so like nervous and I would start moving faster and trying to do things to sort of distract myself from it. It was like, I know they're coming to the, coming to the door. I'm going to close all the windows and we're going to act like nobody's here, you know? And whenever I would do that, man, it would just make it worse. I found it just kind of would hang, hang out for a while longer than I wanted it to. And now I have kind of a different relationship with it. It's like, yeah, I feel it coming on. But in a way, I've like made friends with it. You know? I'm like, oh, I know who it is. Come on in. Instead of like barring the door, I just kind of open the door. I'm like, come on in. Here, here's your seat. Do your thing. And when we do that, when we kind of make friends with it, we run into the storm and try to, instead of trying to run away from it, I found that our time with it is less like controlling. And those seasons, you know, tend to last uh, they're shorter. As Robert Frost once said, the quickest way out is through. Man, I'd agree. So when we're in a trial, we do ourselves a big favor. If we could turn some of our energy from trying to find a way out, instead, we ask for help to get through. Which brings us to what James is really saying in this passage. The point that he wants to get across. He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. This word for perseverance in the Greek is hypomone, and it was a military term that was used to refer uh, to when a group would hold a position at all costs. They would sort of hold their ground. And so the trials and the testing that come our way they have the potential to produce in us a faith that sticks around even when it gets difficult, even when it gets hard. So let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. You know, for James, the goal of this whole thing, life, faith, spirituality, is what he calls maturity. It's one of his favorite words. Uses it a ton all throughout this letter. In the Greek, it's his word teleos. Uh, it means maturity, but not in like the stuck-up, snobby, sort of self-righteous kind of maturity. It's maturity that's more about completeness or wholeness. Even that phrase, so that it may finish its work, that's the verb form of teleos. It's about something being everything that it is. It's like us being who we really are. Fully who God created us to be. And for James, just let this sink in. This is not a small, this is huge if we can get this. For James, the goal of life, the meaning of life, the goal of faith or spirituality, trying to live life on purpose, the goal of that for James is not to get somewhere or to achieve a bunch of things or accumulate a bunch of stuff. It's to become somebody. To become a particular type of person. And this is huge, particularly when it comes to trials. I just wonder how different, how differently would we navigate the trials that come our way if we could come to trust that the goal of life, the goal of the whole thing, has less to do with what is going on around us. And it has more to do with what we are allowing God to do in us. But of course, you know, we live in a part of the world that values comfort, ease, and pleasure above all else. I mean, it's true. Amazon, Amazon's got some products. This isn't the first time I pointed this out either. This is just crazy to me. They've got some things that if you buy them, they'll be to your house in less than an hour. You seen this? You used to think a day was fast. Now it's an hour. 
And I saw their, their, their marketing campaign for this was this, zero to happy in less than an hour. You're laughing. You're laughing about it. But why is that their marketing campaign? Because it works. You unhappy? Buy something. It'll be there in an hour. If things are bad, it's because you're not, you don't have enough stuff. You're not happy enough. And so people really believe, whether you're aware of it or not, subconsciously what we think is the meaning of life is pleasure. The meaning of life is feeling good. The meaning of life is being comfortable. It's being able to go wherever we want, whenever we want, and buy whatever we want, whenever we want. We think that is the meaning of life. And you're sitting here, I don't think that. Really? How do you live? More importantly, how do you act when things get bad? How do you handle that? What happens? Man, for so many people, when trials, they come our way, they can be so overwhelming, so unbearable. It's because when, when, when the goal of life is reduced to being comfortable or experiencing pleasure, then trials or suffering, at best, we experience them as a disruption to the meaning of life. And at worst, man, we can see it as the permanent end to the meaning of life. When the relationship is over, when we get fired from the job and we lose the income, when that person gets sick and they pass away. And for us, if life is all about being comfortable and happy, sometimes that's just gone. The possibility that's gone for a while. Are you with me? I know it's not warm and fuzzy, but man, is it true. And people who are convinced that they cannot or will not know joy until everything in their life is exactly how they want it to be. Man, it's going to be a long time before you experience joy. But when we come to trust that the goal of life is growth, is wholeness, is completeness, then we come to see that the trials that we trip over or that we fall into, they're not something that we have to just avoid. But they're one of the many ways that God can make us more alive. I don't believe that God purposes trials. I don't. I will reject that every single time. The whole thing that, you know, God brings this stuff into our, I don't know that God brings it into our life. I'm not God, so I say that with a little bit of humility. <laughs> like, it's God. God can do whatever God wants. But the God that I know of doesn't cause that stuff. God doesn't purpose trials or pain. But what I know is God always wants to repurpose it. Wants to use it for a different thing, a different reason. And I think this is a lot to do with why James can consider trials a joy or a gift. Because for one, they have a way of bringing clarity. Am I right? They have a way of bringing clarity. Man, if we let it, the trials and the pain that come our way can make us aware of the things that we've become too attached to. The things that we're holding on to too tightly. C.S. Lewis once said, we can ignore pleasure. But pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Man, I believe in that. Think about the conversations you have after a funeral. You talking about the weather? Talking about your fantasy football team? What are you talking about? Talk about stuff that matters. Am I right? I think pain, sometimes it can be clarifying. But I also think that it can be a doorway into purpose, to our vocation, you know, our calling. I want to show you what I mean. I'm going to be a big fan of this artist named Scott Erickson. He goes by Scott the Painter. I love his work. In fact, can we have that one picture? Show that one picture. This is one he did for a Lenten devotional. It's a coffin. 
with a bunch of flowers coming out of it. That's Easter right there. Isn't that cool? But he tells this parable that I think sort of shares this in a really powerful and profound way. Let's watch this real quick. Once a great ship was built. It was strong, mighty, something to behold. And it was given a great purpose to deliver important seeds on the far side of the ocean. The ship celebrated its great purpose. It thought, how great of a task. I must be valuable. Look at this great purpose I was given. This is what I was meant to do. So it set sail. On its journey, an unforeseen storm came upon it. It thought it could handle it. It was sure it could handle it. But the storm was much bigger than it planned for. It couldn't control the situation. The ship was wiped out by the storm. It found itself wrecked on some rocks. It couldn't move. It couldn't go anywhere. The great ship was lost in the ocean. As it sat there for a long time, it sat with its failure. Its failure to fulfill its purpose. But something unforeseen happened. Slowly the water seeped into the seeds and they began to germinate and grow. They grew and grew and over time, there was a large forest. One day, another ship came passing by, also broken and floundering from an unforeseen storm. It came to the broken ship island and asked, may I rest here a while? I'm so tired from my journey. The great ship replied, sure, by all means. As the new ship rested, the great ship gave some of its wood to build a shelter for the crew of the other ship. They stayed a while. After they rested and were healed, the new ship left renewed for its journey. Thank you for your hospitality. You really helped me. After a while, another ship came by. That ship also asked if it could rest for a while. It had been bruised and battered in a storm too and needed a place to be. The great ship took some more of its wood and built another shelter for the much larger crew. When it was healed, it also went on its way. This kept happening. New ship after new ship kept coming, all injured by an unforeseen storm and needing a place to be for a while. The great ship realized that it had something to give, a place to rest, and solidarity from being wrecked as well by the unforeseen storms of the great sea. Pretty soon the great ship decided to build a lighthouse so that all ships passing by that way could find a place to be cared for, to rest, and then continue on their journeys. Throughout the years, the great ship cared for many, many broken and bruised ships. This was a quizzical mystery to the great ship. Out of its own wreckage and failure, it became a gift to others. It always wondered if this was the purpose all along. We've all had our experience of shipwrecks. Am I right? And in ways in which life just fell apart. We blew it. You know, or, or somebody blew it for us. But I, what I think I've, I've witnessed over and over again is I've watched God take the worst and use it for the best. And often I've found that, man, our, our trials and our suffering can actually be like a doorway to our vocation. That isn't your paycheck. That word was first used, it referred to calling. 
It's, it's the reason why you're here. It's the thing that you have to do. It's the thing you have to offer the world that often we find that through trial, through suffering, through pain. There's another way the recovery community models this for us in such a beautiful way. You know, you know what the 12th step is for people who, go, who are working through recovery? 12th step is you go and you sponsor somebody else. Everybody walking out the 12 steps has a sponsor who walks with them. They believe you're not fully recovered from your substance abuse until you're doing that with somebody else. And I, man, that is so true. There's liberation and freedom from that. You want to you experience meaning, purpose, what James calls teleos? This is how it happens. Allow God to take something that once owned you, that once used you. Allow God to somehow take that very thing and use it to give life and hope to somebody else. You want to get lit up from the inside? Whew. I mean, that's freedom. Who better to show up for young kids who don't have a father figure than a guy who grew up without a good dad? Are you with me? Who to be there to be with families who are walking through infertility? than other people who've walked that same road. I mean, imagine a couple who's dealing with infidelity. They, they, they made their way through it, right? They're, they're together, they're working it out. Imagine an opportunity for them to sit across the table from a couple who's just starting that road and saying, hey, listen, you can make it. That's freedom and that's liberation. That's often one of the, the ways in which a trial or suffering can actually be a gift. There can be a joy because it can lead you to a purpose, to a vocation, something bigger than yourself. Here's, I only got one point. Here's what it is. This is really my only point. When it comes down to, to making our way through trials, like you want to find joy in the midst of your trials, stop spending all of your energy trying to get out of it. Instead, get curious and be expectant about what God can do in it and through it. I love how Eugene Peterson translates this passage in his paraphrase of the Bible called The Message. He says this, Consider it a sheer gift, friends, when tests and challenges come at you from all sides, you know that under pressure, your faith life is forced into the open and shows its true colors. So don't try to get out of anything prematurely. Let it do its work so that you become mature and well-developed, not deficient in any way. So don't try and get out of anything prematurely. Love that part. And what if we could just stop trying to get out of it? And instead, what if we could spend some time and consider how we might grow in it and how God might leverage it for good in the world? This has got to become our MO, y'all, when it comes to experiencing our trials. Like I said, some of you aren't in one right now. Just wait. <laughs> it's coming. How are you going to function in it? And I love what James says. If anybody lacks wisdom, and remember the context, it's trial, right? If anybody lacks wisdom, you should ask God. Usually what we don't want in a trial is wisdom. We want relief. Am I right? We just want to get out of it. And we spend so much energy. Just get me out of it. What if you could stop and say, no, wait, wait, wait. What is there for me to learn in this? I'm not saying it's wrong to want to get, yes. And hopefully you will. But man, what if you could come out of it different? What if you could come out of it a better version of you? And not only that, what if God could somehow use it for good? That would be something, right? So that's my challenge for you this week. Maybe you're in one right now. Get some time. Sit with this. Have the courage to even ask God this question. What would you like to do to me in the midst of all of this? And don't just do it once. Stay at it. Listen for some answers. And then invite God to do that work in you. In James, it says, let perseverance finish its work in you. This is so important. 
The language is passive. Did you notice that? Let perseverance finish its work in you. It's passive. It's not active. Growing in maturity isn't so much something we do, but it's something we allow God to do in us. This is true of God. when it comes to the deeper work of stuff in our life, the really deep stuff. It's not something you try really hard at. It's something you allow the Spirit to do in you. You consent to it. And so that's my challenge for you this week. If you're in the midst of a trial, man, have the courage. God, what do you want to do in me through this? And how might you use this for somebody else's good? That's my challenge. It's what I want to do before I send you out. I just want to read back through this passage one more time. Just one more time. And you, just prayerfully invite the Spirit and to speak to you through it. And maybe there'll be a word or a phrase or just a part of it that's going to jump out at you. My, my hope for you this week is that you can then take that and make it a sort of breath prayer. Just pray it all throughout the week. Whatever it is that jumps out of you and grabs your attention. Lord, speak to us right now. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. And it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Lord, speak to us. Lord, whatever it is you have to say, help it to land. Help us to receive it. And help us be people who, like James, can know the gift that's available to us, even in the midst of our trials. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Church, thanks for being here. Don't forget questions, right? You got questions that get brought up during all of this. Send them to me, nick at EmmausChurchSC.com, and we'll get to them during the podcast. Thanks for coming. We'll see you next week.